Lesson 5 of Master Plan for Life, which is on page 41 in your notebooks. And those of you that are watching on live stream, welcome to you as well. And you could let us know that you're out there because otherwise we have no way to know you're out there. Right. Is that true? Yeah, by the chat function, which now works as of last week, actually. It wasn't working the first few weeks, but it works. So if you hit the chat button, you can say, hey, I'm here, which would be great because we do like to, we don't watch it like hawks, but we do like to know that folks have taken enough of this. Everybody's going to be absent sometimes, but this is one of our core classes. So uh, we want to ensure that you've taken enough of it so that you got the, you got the gist uh, out of it. So if you can help us with that, that'd be great. And beyond that, you can use the chat function to actually chat. You can ask a question as we go. So those watching live stream can ask a question that way. Those of you that are here live, you can ask a question as, as well. Though nobody's done that thus far. So here we are in week five. Nobody's asked a question. So I'm not sure how to interpret that. I'll just, I'll just take that as... There are a lot of ways that you could take that, but I'll just take it in a good way. That's all good. And uh, it, it's all clear. Yeah, that's right. I'm on a roll. You don't want to break it. So page 41, and this is lesson number five. And I remind you that in preparation for each of our times together, that there is the homework for you to do that then prepares you for what we're going to talk about. And I encourage you to do that if you can. Every day you've just got a few questions to answer, some passages to look up, keeps you in, in the Word that way. And then we've been emailing the answers to those questions. Dr. Combs has been doing that. If anybody hasn't been getting those, uh, then let us know and we'll make sure that you do start getting those. Master Plan for Life has two sections to it. The notebook that you have has both sections in it, and each section is seeking to answer one question. The first section that we're in now is answering the question, Who am I? And we are going to take 16 lessons total to answer that question. We're going to answer that question in those 16 lessons divided into five sections. The section we're in right now is the Doctrine of God, upper right-hand corner of your lesson. You see it says that. Tonight, Lesson 5 is the final lesson in the section on the Doctrine of God. Next week, we'll start the second section on the Doctrine of the Bible, and then a third section on what the Bible says about humanity and sin, and then a fourth section on Christ, and then a fifth section on salvation. All five of those comprise Part 1, answering that one question, Who am I? Then we'll go to part two. Part two has 12 lessons in it, answering the question, why am I here? So this is a total of 28 lessons. Now, in this section on the doctrine of God, we had an introductory lesson on, uh, on God. It just had three uh, points. The person we call God was the title, and it was God exists, God is a person, God is a triunity, those three things. But then in Lesson 2, we began to look at the attributes of God, the character qualities of God, what God is like. That lesson was called The Greatness of God. And we looked at the category of character qualities that fall under God's greatness. Then in Lesson 3, two weeks ago, the lesson was The Greatness of God in the Christian Life. Okay, there's the greatness of God. What's it mean? What's it mean to me practically? Last week, we looked at the second category of God's attributes, His character qualities, those of His goodness. And then tonight, this lesson, lesson five, is, okay, what does the goodness of God mean to me? And this one's called 
the goodness of God and the, and the Christian life. Now, what's the difference between those two categories, greatness and goodness? You guys should know this because I've been, I've been pounding it by now. But in lesson two, when we looked at the character qualities of his greatness, we said those are the character qualities that belong to God alone, that if we had them, we would be God. If he did not have them, then he would not. And so they are his, the fancy term is his incommunicable attributes. That is, they cannot be communicated, they cannot be shared with his creatures. They're not shared with, with us. But then the other category is his goodness. And we saw last week some of the character qualities of his goodness, his grace, his love, his righteousness, his truth, his faithfulness, those kinds of things. Those can be shared, communicated, so they're his communicable attributes. Those of us made, humanity made in the image of God now, uh, that means that we can reflect those character qualities uh, in a limited fashion, but nevertheless, we can reflect those uh, back to God. So greatness, goodness. Greatness is all about God. His sovereignty, His omnipotence, His omniscience, those are God alone. His goodness are things like love, grace, righteousness, faithfulness, truth. Those are things that God has, yes, they shine most brightly in God, but they can be uh, reflected in us as well. So tonight we're looking at the goodness of God, those things that we can share and reflect, and the Christian life, what that practically means to us. Top of page 41 then. Lesson 2 and 3 focused on the attributes of God's greatness. It was shown that He is infinite, but mankind is, is finite. So again, when we say that He is infinite, remember what that means. It means God has no external limitations on what He does. So He can do anything, but you have to fill in, you have to fill in, in further. He can do anything that He desires to do on demand. You don't just say God can do anything because there actually are some things that God cannot do because He has the internal limitation of His own character. He can't lie. It's not He just does not lie. He's constitutionally incapable of lying by His nature. So that's why we say He has no external limitations. Thankfully, He does have internal limitations. Otherwise, His power would mean He could do evil. And that would be a horrible way to have to exist. So he can do anything he desires, and he only desires that which is consistent with his nature, and he can do that by fiat, on demand, as a, as a dictator. He doesn't have to ask anyone's permission. There's no one who can impinge upon what he does, tell him what to do. Thankfully, his desires are governed by his, his goodness, things like we saw last week. So, lesson 2 and 3, top of page 41, focused on the attributes of God's greatness. It was shown that He's infinite, we are finite, we are limited. We do have external things that uh, limit what we are able to do. We're limited by space, He is not. We're limited by knowledge, He is not. We're limited in our authority, He, he is not. This difference is known as the creator-creature distinction. In Lesson 4, last week, the focus was, instead of on greatness, it was on the attributes of God's goodness. God's goodness is all of His character qualities that can be described as holy. So do you remember, then, back in Lesson 2, when we were looking at these character qualities of God's greatness, sovereignty, omnipotence, omniscience, 
We modified all of those by saying God is infinite in his knowledge. God is infinite in his power. God is infinite in his authority. So infinite was our modifier. Last week, we had a different modifier for these attributes of God's goodness, and that was God is holy. God is holy in his love, holy in his grace, holy in his, his righteousness. So he's holy in, in each of those. That is, we remember, holy means set apart. Set apart, different. So God's character qualities are described as holy, middle of that top paragraph. Even though mankind can never be infinite, we can share God's holiness. And this lesson will show how the attributes of God's goodness apply, one, to humanity in general, and two, specifically to the Christian. Now look at the second paragraph there. Every ethical change that God brings about in the life of the Christian is an expression of holiness. You want a book? Yes. Yeah, we got some over there. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> The dog ate my homework. Nice. <laughs> Say, he doesn't have his wife here with him tonight. It's a, it's a wonder you even made it, man, at all, without your wife. Yeah, we're page 41. Page 41. Second paragraph there. Every ethical change that God brings about in the life of the Christian is an expression of holiness. Now remember, holiness is set apart. Different. So what this means is, you have to read that over again. Every ethical change that God brings about in the life of the Christian is an expression of holiness. What it's saying is this. God is at work progressively, gradually setting us apart, making us different. That means becoming more and more holy. God is calling people out of the world and to himself and progressively making those people, those of us who belong to Him, Christians, His children, making us different so that a couple of things happen. Sin becomes increasingly unattractive. As you are set apart, God's doing this work of setting you apart from what you were, so sin is becoming increasingly unattractive to you. But here's a second thing that happens you are becoming increasingly unattractive to the world. <laughs> you get both of those. I mean, they, and they both go together. You know, you don't desire the same things to the same degree. As we're going to see under the doctrine of salvation, this idea of sanctification that's progressively becoming holy is something that happens progressively, gradually. It doesn't happen all at once. You don't become all at once completely holy until you die <laughs> or until Christ returns, whichever comes first. So in the meantime, you're becoming progressively, gradually more holy, sanctified. And so you still struggle with sin. I still struggle with sin. But over time, less so. And over time, that means sin is... And the reason is because sin is increasingly less attractive. But what goes with that is the people who used to hang around with you in your sin find you less attractive as well. And you hear that testimony lots from Christian people. Man, I don't know, my friends just don't want to... You know, well, guess what? A person who bases their friendship with you upon what you do rather than who you are is not a true friend. 
you know, you, you hear that kind of thing, like somebody gets married, and you had, you know, people who were single, and they hang around, hung around, did whatever they did when they were single, and then one of them gets married. And then, you know, after a year or so, they, the single person says to the married person, you know, you've changed. Well, wait a minute, my circumstances changed. But I thought you loved me. Turns out you loved the stuff we did. Now, those are, might be great memories. And it might be things for you to be thankful for. But if they really love you, they'll still love you in your changed circumstance. So you become increasingly less attractive to, to the world. He, God, is bringing about this ethical change as an expression of holiness gradually in the life of the Christian. So the Christian is, middle of that second paragraph, set apart from sin to God. Page 41, Tracy. And I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad you showed up because your husband wandered in here. He didn't have his book. He didn't know what to do, man. He's, <laughs> he said the dog ate his homework and, you know, the whole bit. So I'm glad you're here to take care of him. <laughs> Page 41. <laughs> so we're being set apart from sin to God. The character qualities of God, such as love, righteousness, and grace that we saw last week that are under that category of His goodness, become the positive marks of the holiness of God in the life of the Christian. So... That means you and I should be looking at things like that. We should be looking at love, righteousness, and grace and saying, hey, am I, am I reflecting that more clearly this month, this year, than I did last month, last year? And there should be an increase in that. There should be a progression in that. That's growth in, in your walk with, with the Lord. Now, if, you're, if you belong to God, there's going to be, there's going to be growth, guaranteed. God has guaranteed it. We'll see that you know, later. Uh, but the part of the process by which God does that is us actively involved in what He's doing in our lives. And that means looking and saying, hey, am I reflecting what the Lord says here? And do I want to? Yeah, I do want to. How do I do that? Well, take Master Plan for Life, one, and we'll, we'll explain for you how, you how you do that, okay? All right, so let's look first of all at the love of God in the Christian life, and then we'll look at the righteousness of God in the Christian life, and then the grace of God and the Christian life. And as we said, and as we did in Lesson 3 with the greatness of God attributes, we'll look first of all at how these apply to humanity in general, then we'll look at how they apply to Christians specifically. So, middle of page 41, mankind's relationship to the loving God. All mankind is the object of God's love. Future lessons will show that mankind bears the image of God, and it's this image that distinguishes people from the rest of creation. God's love is limited to that which reflects His own image, namely mankind. All right, now you got to look at that last sentence, all of you pet owners. God's love is limited to that which reflects His own image, namely mankind. Guys, I don't know who the pet owners are. I happen to be a non-pet owner. I look forward to the kingdom when there's going to be a change in the animal kingdom. And I, I, and I will just love animals. And you guys will all come around and go, look, man, you're a real animal lover. But as it stands right now, I keep my distance pretty much. Okay? So we got my wife, she's a, she would love to be a farm girl. So she's a big animal lover. Some of you got pets in your house. It's all, all good. However, you need to understand God does not love Fido like he loves you. Okay? And... Uh, we, we do, I'll just say this, but, and then move on, because 
I know how attached people get to their, to their animals, and I don't want to get killed. I don't want to get shot. But you know, some of the ways that people humanize animals, it's just a little bit over the top, okay? That's all. I mean, when I was a kid, we had, we had dogs a few times, and my friends on my street had dogs. And there were these little... There were these little structures in the backyard. They were, they were little houses where dogs stayed. They were called dog houses. You guys remember Peanuts, Charlie Brown? Snoopy had one, had a dog house. I, you notice there are like no dog houses anymore? There used to be dog houses everywhere. Dog houses was a thing. Dogs stayed in their houses. Now dogs stay in your houses. Right? And you, you know, you might have to get out, okay? So it's okay. That's the way, that's the way it is. Not only that, but there are a whole, it's a whole burgeoning industry of dog stuff, pet stuff. So there are like grocery store practically things for pets. And back when I was a kid, there just absolutely was no such thing. There used to be, for feeding dogs, there was a thing called a doggy bag. When you went to a restaurant, they put stuff, and they called it that, the doggy bag. <laughs> but now it's gourmet meals. It's stuff delivered. I mean, okay, if you've got a pet, take care of your pet, okay? And be nice to your pet. If you're going to have one, do that. Just, you know, understand and remember, God makes a distinction between the two. Now, on this issue of all mankind being the object of, of God's love, if that's the case, if God really is a God of love, and he loves all humanity. Then if someone says, you know, most people just want to be loved. Have you ever had that? You know, I, most people just want to be loved. Well, okay, the Bible's saying they are. <laughs> so the problem, the problem isn't quite that, then, if, the, if, if what the Bible says is true. How do we evaluate this idea that most people just want to be loved? Sometimes we'll add, most people just want to be loved unconditionally. Well, God does, as we saw last week, love unconditionally. But what most people mean by that is, I want to be accepted as I am. Well, all right. But if, 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 if God loves you, if someone loves you, and what you are is not good for you, then what will that person who loves you try to do? They'll try to help you change that. And so when we say God loves unconditionally, see, it's precisely because God loves humanity that he does not leave us where we are. A lot of churches advertise, you know, hey, come as you are. It's okay if all well, you mean is you know you don't have to get in you don't have to get in dressed to the nines to show up you know to church, and we are happy to have you and so come as you are. But if we mean come as you are in terms of your spiritual life, yeah, come as you are, but don't leave as you were. Right, and that's what that's what God does. In fact, that's why David Paulison, the late David Paulison, a biblical counselor says that he's got a little booklet by this title, God's love is better than unconditional. If we mean by unconditional, just stay where you are. And hey, no judging, 
I can't judge where you are, right? This is the culture we live in, no judging. No, God says, no, no, I judge. You're not what you ought to be. And because I love you, I want to move you from here to there. And if we love people, we want to move them lovingly, not in a haughty way, but see them move to where they need to go. And we need people to do that for us. Left to themselves, all people reject God's manifestation of himself, Romans chapter 1 teaches. So this idea that all people want is just to be loved, no, that's not the problem. The problem is people reject the God who is love. And so apart from God's gracious intervention, we would never come to see and appreciate the love of God. All mankind is the object of God's love. Number two, middle of page 41, the supreme expression of God's love is the gift of His Son. The following verse demonstrates both the universality of God's love and the manner in which God has loved. The famous John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, that has in it, one, the world. And so that's the universality part. And when it talks about the world, if, if you go through the books in the New Testament by uh, the Apostle John, the Gospel of John here, then he wrote three letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He also wrote the last book of your Bible, Revelation. But if you go through those, when John uses the word world, it's a Greek word, cosmos, when he uses that, it's used in a negative sense of the arrangement that is opposed to God. God so loved a world that is opposed to Him. But God, nevertheless, is a God of love, and He, he loves this world that's in opposition to Him, and that's the universality piece. But then the way in which God has shown this love is in the so, the word so. God so loved the world. Sometimes when we think of John 3.16, which is without doubt the most well-known verse in the Bible, when we think of God so loved the world, we think of so as God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son. But what that's actually saying is God loved the world like so, <laughs> this way, in this manner. This is how God loved the world. And how was it? By giving, He gave His one and only Son. Now, if you memorize that like I did in Sunday school as a kid in the King James, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Remember that only begotten Son? And, you know, your New Testament was written in Greek. And the... Uh, word, Greek word, translated only begotten, is exactly like another Greek word that means one and only. You see it says one and only son? And the difference, I say they're exactly the same, except one, one Greek letter. And the better translation is of this Greek word mono, here's the Greek word, monogenes. Monogenes. So let's do a little Greek Grammar here. So mono, you guys know what mono means in, in English, in our English word. You know, if you have a monocle, you got, in, instead of bifocals, bifocals have two lenses. A monocle has one. So a mono means one. Monotheism means belief in one God, right? So mono, one. Genes, 
when you were in biology class, if you can remember back to that, and you, know, you got to the part where you know, biologists divide up living things into these different categories, and they got these categories like a family, a kingdom, a phyla, you know, a genus. Do you guys remember that? A genus was one of the categories, right? The genase means a category, a kind. So what you got here in monogenase is one of a kind. That's why it says one and only. His unique son. There is only one God the Son. And no one like him. As we saw in lesson number one, God is a triunity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it is God the Son, the unique one, God the one and only, one of a kind, who was sent and who God showed his love to a hostile world in his death on, his death on the cross. Mankind's relationship to the loving God. The supreme, supreme expression of that is the gift of his one and only, one of a kind son. Now, that's the significance for humanity in general. Here is the significance to the Christian in particular. You see on page 41 there, believers share the character quality of God's holy love. Well, we know that we can share this because back in lesson four, we saw that the character qualities of God in this category of His goodness are in that category precisely because of that, that we can share it, that we can reflect these things. So we can reflect God's love. Just as people pass on many of their human characteristics to their children, so our Heavenly Father passes on His attributes of goodness to His children. And if you need a reminder about that, back on pages 32 and 33. Here's what John, this one who wrote John 3.16, talks about the world. John also uses the word love a lot. And here he does it again. 1 John, his first letter, 1 John 4.7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows, and knows God. So believers can share that. Second, the presence of genuine love in one's life is evidence of a relationship with God. So if this is a character quality of God that we can share, then it ought to be seen in our lives if we're His children. Imperfectly, I, I know, for me, for you, but it ought, to be, it ought to be seen. Here's 1 John again, the next verse. Whoever does not love does not know God. So if we fail to love, he, John would say, then you don't know God. The Bible tells us to be like God. 1 Peter, if you care to jot it down, 1 Peter 1.16. 1 Peter 1.16. Be holy as I am holy. That is, be different. That's what, that's what holy means. Be different how? Be different in that you show love like God does. It's one of the ways you show your difference, your holiness. Or John 13.35, John 13.35, the night before Jesus was crucified, he says to his first followers, by this will all men know you are my disciples if you love one another. Now please note this, friends, that love is um, not, love is not loyalty. Sometimes people confuse those. You know, gangs are loyal. Teams are loyal. 
Army battalions are loyal. I'm not criticizing that loyalty. Uh, but God's love, the Greek word agape love that we saw last week, is loyal, but it also gives you what's best for you. So it doesn't allow loyalty to get in the way of love. And sometimes we do that. We have somebody that's on our team, so to speak. Maybe it's our own flesh and blood. And we say, I'm not going to deal with it out of loyalty to them. But in fact, love is greater than loyalty. And love wants to help them with, with whatever it is. It also means, any of you parents, that, you know, the old not my kid doesn't fly. I mean, it might be your kid. It might be my kid who did it. So, and we want to know if they did, so because we love them and we want to then help them with it. Remember this. Here's what love is. We saw it last week at the end of our time. Love is doing what's in the, or not the end of our time, but during our time. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. Sometimes, though, often people don't know what their best interest is. And unbelievers definitely don't know what their best interest is. Their best interest is to be brought to Jesus Christ, is to repent, to see their sin. That's their best interest. But they don't see it that way because that means you're making a judgment that I've got a problem. Well, yeah, you do have a problem. I got one too. That's why I had to come to Jesus. But love is doing what's in the best interest of, of another, you know, which means you just have to risk it sometimes if you love people to show it to them. Now notice uh, at the bottom of page 41, you've got 1 John 4, 7, you've got 1 John 4, 8. Lots of passages in, as I said, John, about this issue of, of God's love and demonstrating our relationship with God by love and other things, in, in especially 1 John. Now, the reason for that is this. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, 1 John 5, 13. That's the last chapter of 1 John. It only has five chapters. Chapter 5 and verse 13 is the last verse of the body of the letter. And it says that I have written these things so that you will know that you have eternal life. That's what he says in 1 John 5, 13. I've written, now what things? The things in the four and a half chapters prior to that. And those things, if you go read it, and we'll see it in several weeks from now, in some detail. But if you go and look at what 1 John says, these are all things that are character qualities of people that are Christians. One of those is love. But there are others as, as well. And I've written these things to you so that you'll know. Hey, is this true of me? And if it's not true of me, it's not true of you perfectly, I already know that, but if it's not true of me, then do I want it to be? And if I want it to be, then that's a good sign because that means God's at work in my life causing me to desire the right things. All right, page 42.
Genuine love is also demonstrated in the life of a believer through obedience to God. Love is demonstrated through obedience to God. Jesus says, you see it there, John 14, if you love me, keep my commands. Individuals cannot define love for themselves. Love is not emotional attachment or sentimental weakness. God himself defines love as obedience to his commands. So, true biblical love always functions within the sphere of truth. Now, if you could get that, it would help you <laughs> greatly in your relationships in determining how do I interact with this person I love. You know, if you've ever had people in your family that are very challenging to you, I've had that. How do, you, how do you love people that are like really challenging to you? And people that you love, they're in your family, they're in your circle of friends, but they're, they're very challenging to you. Um, that challenge might include like always needy. Like always, you know, always needing money and coming to you for money. And, you know, you, over time you've learned where the money's been going. The money's been going into alcohol, or the money's been going into just frivolous guy, whatever it is. And you love them, and you don't want to see them not be able to pay the rent, or not be able. But you've also got what you know, right? And so you could easily conclude then, well, if I, I love them, so I gotta. But see, this love functions within the sphere of truth. Can be very helpful <laughs> with that. Because it means love is not permissive. Instead, it wants and does what is in the best interest of the individual and the best interest of God. How does God want you to steward the resources that He's entrusted to you? So I've had to do that. I've had to make that calculation. It's not easy. But this has been a great help. My dear mom, who's with the Lord, she's had the kindest heart in the world. And she just was, she had such a hard time getting her mind around this. You know, it's my, it's my child. I have to do this. And as I learned this over time, I say, Mom, not only don't, don't you have to do this, you're actually becoming an enabler now with your permissiveness on this. We cannot say we love, friends, if it's not the way God loves, since He's the one who's the originator of love. Does God, is God an enabler to us to move in the wrong direction? So for what it's worth, this is what I say to people that are very needy and trying. I say, hey, I will always be there for you to help you move in the right direction. But I will not help you move in the wrong direction. I will always be there for you to help you move in the right direction. And I'll be there over and over and over again. You know, you, I help you. We're hoping you get on your feet. And you do for a couple of months, but then you mess up and then you go. And, and then, you know, several months later, you're coming and you're, you're, you want to try again and you really want to do that and you want to move in the right direction. And you I'll help you try to find a job. I'll even drive you there in the morning to get there. I'm, I'm speaking from experience and everything I'm saying to you right now. I'll do it, and I'll do it for you over and over and over again. I will be there every time you want to move in the right direction. 
but I will not help you move in the wrong direction. That's how you walk that line between loving somebody but doing it within the sphere of truth and loving the way God loves in their best, in their best interest. All right, fourthly, God's love for the believer will result in discipline for disobedience. Since God's love is demonstrated by obedience to God, true love will not tolerate disobedience. It's in our best interest for God to insist that we obey. Therefore, punishment of disobedience is actually an expression of true love. Here's Hebrews 12. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. So that's the love of God in the the Christian life. Here's the righteousness of God and the Christian life. First, humanity in general and the righteous God. Every person, because of God's righteousness, is required to live according to the moral standards revealed by God. The ultimate test of anyone's actions or motives is not, am I better than someone else? The ultimate test is, am I like God? So for humanity in general, everybody, that's the standard, God's righteousness. But of course, sinful humanity wants to lower the standard. We want to make it, hey, I'm not like that guy. And I, I tell you, it's almost comical, if it weren't sad, but really it's almost comical when I talk to people who are outside of Christ, how often they compare themselves to other people that are worse than they are. Regularly. And can you believe what that guy did? I can't, every time I talk to that guy, he's doing, you know, he's doing this, he's doing that. All the while, they're not looking at themselves in the mirror. Why? Because that deflects the attention from their own, right? God says, and, and God says, that guy's not the standard anyway. I'm the standard. The test is, am I like God? Now, no, so of course, it's not, am I God, but am I like God? Do I display the character qualities that God shares with humanity? For most people, if they believe in a hell at all, and you ask them, who goes to hell? Well, what do most people think of when they say, who goes to hell? Oh, it's like really bad people. People worse than me. And thankfully, there's a lot of people a lot worse than me. So I can feel pretty good about myself. That's the way most people look at it. And so when they see these you know, things on TV and they see some mass murderer or they see some kind of you know, crazed person, they actually feel, in a sense, good about that because they feel better about themselves. But no, who goes, who goes to hell? It's, it's you and me. Unless God, unless God intervenes graciously, which thankfully He has done in, in Christ. So, every person is required to live according to the moral standards revealed by, by God. Anything you see in the box there that is not like God is sin. So sin is, is failing to think, speak, and act like God. You want a quick definition of sin, and we have, a lesson, we have a lesson on sin later, but if you just want one for now, it's failure to think, speak, and act like God. Well, that, that, if God's keeping track of all that, <laughs> we're all doomed. And He is keeping track, as we saw, because He's omniscient, so He's got all of it but it's failure to think, speak, and act like God. Ah, but it's worse than that. Because remember, those are just sins of commission. That is, 
things you commit, things you think that you shouldn't, things you say that you shouldn't, things you do that you shouldn't. Those are sins of commission. The Bible teaches that there are sins of omission. Things that you're supposed to say that you don't. Things you're supposed to think that you don't. Things you're supposed to do that you don't. Oh man, you add that to it. And then you, you've got people that have the nerve to say, hey, I'm going to stand before God and if my good outweighs my bad, I'll get into heaven. Anybody who says that has no earthly idea what sin is. Because there is no way that anybody is going to have their good outweigh their bad if sin is the way we think, speak, and act or the ways we fail to think, speak, and act as we are supposed to. Because God is righteous, number two, bottom of page 42, true justice is going to be accomplished at the final judgment. Now remember that righteousness and justice are related terms. We saw that in last week's lesson. Right, we had a whole section, five points right in a row. Right, righteousness, righteous, just, justice, these are all related terms. It means conformity to a standard. And if God is righteous, and He is, then He must judge. He must ensure that justice is done. And that's why you can be sure there's going to be a final judgment. Because God's righteous. The Bible teaches that all people are responsible to be righteous, but wickedness is everywhere and growing worse. Sometimes it also seems that wickedness, the wicked will get away with their sin, that crime pays. The Bible does not guarantee that we will always see justice done in our lifetime, but there will come a time when every thought, word, action, and motive will come under the justice of the righteous God. That is sobering. It's true. It's sobering. It's actually a blessing as well because all of the evil that you see going on and it looks like people are getting away with it, ain't nobody getting away with nothing from, from God. Here's part of what that means for you and me. That as you see people getting away with stuff and maybe they're getting away with stuff or it looks like they are, that they're doing to you. And you're tempted to take vengeance. You're tempted to take matters into your own hands. And what does the Lord say? Romans chapter 12, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And you can sit back and say, okay, I don't have to do it because I know God is righteous. And God's righteousness guarantees His justice. God will take care of it. Therefore, I don't have to be a vigilante about it. Page 43 then. Acts chapter 17 at the top of page 43. God has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed, that is Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. All right, that's the significance of God's righteousness for humanity in general. Now to the Christian. Just like with love, we share the character quality of God's holy righteousness. We are in the process of change, day by day, increasingly being conformed to the image of Christ. Secondly, the presence of righteousness in one's life is evidence, just like of love, that we have a relationship with God. And do you see where we're quoting from again here? 
1 John 3 because those five chapters in 1 John are all about these evidences that someone is a child of God. And here's another one that we demonstrate that there is righteousness in our life. 1 John 3, verses 7 and 10. Now, here's what that means then. If you and I are being called upon by God as His children to demonstrate at least a measure of His righteousness in our lives in increasing measure, if that's true, and it is, then here's what that means. It means that as a Christian, you can please God. Did you know when you were a non-Christian, you couldn't? You could not please God at all before you came to Jesus. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. Before you come to Christ, even the good stuff you do doesn't measure up. And you know why? Because you, even though you do the right things, you never do them outside of Christ for the right reasons. And what's the ultimate right reason to do what you do? In fact, when the Bible defines sin most succinctly in Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the Anybody remember the glory of God? The reason that we're supposed to do what we do is for the glory of God. And an unbeliever never does it, even if they do good stuff, they never do it for the glory of God. So a person may give away their fortune you know, to help people, and I'm glad they do because it helps people. But in terms of impressing God, uh-uh. Because it's never done for the right reason. But we now, having come to Christ... We can not only do the right thing, we can do it for the right reason. And so we can please God. The power of sin has been broken, the Bible teaches, when you come to Christ. So the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, Colossians 1.10, that we aim to please God. Colossians 1.10 in 2 Corinthians 5.10. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we make it our goal to please Him. So Christians can please God, but prior to that, couldn't do it. Number three, God's righteousness guarantees forgiveness when the sinning believer confesses his or her sins. Christians are able to be righteous in their thoughts, words, and actions, and motives. However, it doesn't mean that we do it perfectly. 1 John, again, 1.8 indicates Christian sin. Sin in the life of a believer affects his intimacy with God. But God is always willing to forgive and restore his fallen child. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, though, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, what does God forgiving us have to do with God's righteousness? Well, it's because, well, let me ask it this way. On what basis can God forgive without being unjust? Because remember, God has to do justice since He's righteous. So, you know, we get, we get the idea that, well, God can't, you know, can you just find it in your heart to just sort of overlook that? 
can't we, you know, when you, we used to play hide and seek, and then, you know, whoever was, I forget, I even forget the game, I'm so old now, but I don't know, if you're the person who was it, I don't know, but you, yeah, you were it, okay, <laughs> and then you, and then you yell out, you know, was it Ali Ali, oxen free, and it just means, okay, everybody, you're all good now, you're all let off the hook, and so we have that idea about God, you know, he just sort of yells that out, okay, I'm letting you all off the hook. But see that because of his righteousness, justice has got to be done. So his forgiveness is not him just yelling in the hide-and-seek game of life. Okay, I'm letting you all off the hook. It's on the basis of the death of Jesus on the cross. Because justice, God's justice, has been done on the cross. Otherwise, God, if he just overlooks sin, now he's unjust. But he can be just and forgive now because his justice has been taken out on Jesus. And then four, God's justice guarantees that any good deeds we do will not be forgotten. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help him, he, them. Hebrews 6.10 Though the unsaved sinner can never really do good deeds in God's sight, the believer can and then there is the grace of God and the Christian life. The love of God, the righteousness of God, and now finally the grace of God. Theologians classify the grace of God into two categories, common and special. Common grace is a description of His kindness given to all mankind, whether believers or unbelievers. Special grace is the kindness that God gives specifically to believers. So again, we'll look at humanity in general and the grace of God, and then believers specifically. And for humanity in general, it is this common grace of God. Because of common grace, all people understand that God exists. God has made that known. He has, he has revealed that to everybody in what's called general revelation, in the creation and in Romans chapter 2, in the conscience that He's given to people. Now, that's a matter of grace because God doesn't have to do it. Remember in Lesson 4 last week, grace is something that God condescends but is under no obligation to do. So He doesn't have to make Himself known to anybody. To anybody. I mean, theoretically, God could have created the world and just sort of step back and just watch the ants just move around and they have no idea what they're doing. But in His common grace, He makes known that He is that He is the Creator, that people are responsible to Him. Second, because of common grace, God condescends, doesn't have to, but He does, restrains evil in the world. The fact that all people are not as evil as they could be is not because, you know, you just got some good people and some bad people. That's the way most of us think of it. You know, there's some... I, even if, if you did this when you're, if you have children and when your children were little, if you said this, I'm not getting on your case too much. But when I hear people and I, they have a baby and I'll say, so how's the, how's the baby doing? And how's the baby sleeping? And then they'll say, oh, he's a good baby. You, you guys know where I'm going. Well, if he's like his old man. <laughs> I never say old lady, I just say old man, okay? 
but if he's like his parents. And, you know, what do we, what do we mean by that? People are not good. The Bible teaches we are not good. Now, God restrains how bad we can be. That's common grace. Those restraints come in a number of forms. They come in social mores, for example. I mean, if you were born into a home where there were, and you lived in a culture where there were rules and there were police around and there were just some things you just understood you don't do, then that's a blessing. That's a blessing of God's grace. But, you know, if you were not born in a place like that, and if you were born in a place where the police just don't come around and people just do their own thing, guess what? The restraints are low. And that could be you just as much as it could be that other person. So it comes to those restraints come in the form of social mores, in the form of government, believe it or not. <laughs> the Bible teaches that government has this good function to restrain evil. So don't be one of these people who hates the government. You can hate a lot of the junk the government does. I get all of that. But God's the one who created government. And he even says in Romans chapter 13 that, the, that he says the, um, the, the ruler in Romans chapter 13, at that time the Roman emperor, Nero, who was certifiably insane, he says he's God's servant to punish evil. So, you know, we got Biden. That's, believe it or not, that ain't Nero, okay? And in your lifetime, you're probably not going to get to Nero. But Paul did 2,000 years ago, and that's what, he, that's what he wrote. It's a matter of God's common grace. Thirdly, because of common grace, God is patient with mankind. God could condemn the entire human race at any time. The condemnation of the race would be pure justice. It's the grace of God that allows us to live. Here's 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And if you look at the verses just before that one, before verse 9, it's about people mocking and saying, where is this coming that He has promised? Why is He delaying? And Peter's answer is, He's not slow as the way... You think of slowness, that he just hasn't gotten around to it yet. No, on purpose, he's being patient. He's allowing as much time as possible for people to come, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's God's common grace. Anything that you receive then in this life, better than hell is more than we deserve. I mean, that's just the way to think about God's grace. And that's true for all of us. All right, but here's what happens. i got five minutes left. Stay with me. So here's what happens. Here is God being gracious to His creation, humanity in general, common grace. And we become so accustomed to His grace that we take it for granted. So here's, a, here's an example. R.C. Sproul, some of you know that name? The late R.C. Sproul. He said that uh, years ago he was teaching a class on Old Testament at a seminary. And the first day of class, he has, a, he has a class in an auditorium of like 150 students. 
And he says on the first day of class, okay, here are the requirements for this class. There are going to be three papers. Those papers are going to be due on October 1st, November 1st, and December 1st. If your paper is not in on October 1st, November 1st, December 1st, you will receive an F for that assignment. Does everyone understand? And they all acknowledged, we understand. You remember at the beginning of the semester, hope springs eternal. Everybody's like, yeah, I'm going to go get it. Sure, prof, we'll get it turned in. And then come that first date, October the 1st, out of the 150, 100 of them turn in their papers on time. And 50 of them don't, and they come to him, and they are just quaking, scared to death, because he had made it very clear, and they had said they acknowledged it, you're going to get enough. And they said, listen, it's a new semester. Some of us are freshmen. We're trying to figure out our course load, and can we, can we have another week? And he says, yeah, I'll give you another week. And they just sing his praises. Oh, thank you. And so they go. And then the following month, November 1st, out of the 150, 75 turn in their paper on time. The other 75, they're concerned, but they're not quaking in their boots like they, they were before. And they say, hey, listen, it's just a lot going on. There's the you know, homecoming football game and stuff like that. Will you? And he says, yeah, I'll give you another week. He gives them another week. And then December 1st comes around. And almost nobody turns their paper in. And he starts to go through the list alphabetically. And he says, Adams, is your paper turned in? And he says, no. He says, F. And then he says, Anderson, paper. No, F. Brown, paper. Yes, of course. <laughs> okay. Carico. <laughs> Pastor Rich, no. F. And he just goes down the list giving all these Fs. And people are just howling in protest. You can't do that. It's not fair. And he says, did I not tell you what the rules were? October 1, November 1, December 1. Yeah, but you gave us. He says, listen, what I gave you before was grace. What I'm giving you now is justice. And do you see how that works? The more God gives His grace, the more we take it for granted. And we think that God then cannot exercise His justice. But the truth is, He can exercise His justice anytime He wants. But we've been so blessed by His grace, in general, common grace, and then especially Christians in special grace. Bottom of page 44, the special grace of God results in our salvation. Christians are saved only because of this undeserved, unearned, and unwanted kindness of God. Top of page 45, the special grace of God results in the spiritual growth of those who are saved. It's the kindness of God that allows us the marvelous privilege of growing in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know, I said in the sermon uh, last week or the week before, all runs together for me, but something like that we fail all on our own, but it requires the grace of God for us to succeed. And in our spiritual growth, that's the deal. If you don't have the grace of God, you, you don't grow, you don't succeed. But thankfully, Christians do, and He's given us the guarantee that He is and will be involved in our lives to do that. And just like with love and righteousness, we, number three, share the character quality of God's holy graciousness so we can show that to others. And like love and righteousness, it's an evidence of our relationship with God. Okay? 
That's lesson five. We are finished with the first section of part one. Next week, we will look at God's communication to us in the Bible on the doctrine of the Bible. Okay? It is 8.15.